welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its research and its staff benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Christopher Hand, a lecturer in cyber psychology, to talk about a new study on the dark side of social media and how his research has shown that almost a quarter of Twitter users show psychopathic or sadistic signs of behaviour. Chris, great to see you again. How's things? I'm okay, thanks, Craig. Uh, how are you? I am okay. Just as we were talking before we started recording, I tried to stay up to watch the Royal Rumble last night and it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it, but don't worry. My uh, my tiredness and fatigue won't affect the quality of this podcast. Because the last time you and I spoke to each other, that was six months ago, and that was just after lockdown restrictions around the country had begun to ease. We're more or less back to square one. How have things been since we last spoke? Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing because it simultaneously feels five minutes ago that I was talking to you and also a million years ago. You're right, things things have changed. I mean, we are we're very lucky in that we've stayed healthy so far. We're getting by. I mean, I think that's that's all we're really aiming for at the moment is just kind of getting on, not trying to do anything too ambitious. But yes, yeah, it's, it's been hard. It's it's hard not to be able to see the people that are close to you, your family. You know, having that wee breather on Christmas Day and being able to see one other household was was good. My sister came round on Christmas morning, so that was nice to catch up with her. But yeah, for various reasons, we've not been able to see parents and extended family and, and that kind of things. But getting by and yeah, yeah, staying healthy, that's the main thing. Yeah, I remember when I was actually setting up this podcast, I was, I was saw your piece of research that we're going to be talking about. I thought, no, it was only a couple of weeks ago that Chris and I spoke to each other. Let's see it for another time. Then when I checked back six months, I, uh, I I couldn't believe it. But no, it's great to hear that, that things are going well in the circumstances. Um, I was thinking about it yesterday um, and just sort of thinking back to where we were in, in August and September. And I mean, I remember having sort of very tentative conversations about doing things like induction on campus because you know things were making such good progress yeah. um at the time but i mean i think you know the the kind of difficult decisions we made about sticking to our guns about remote learning and, and working off campus you know that's you know you don't want to take any pride in it because obviously it's a horrendous situation but i think you know feeling a wee bit of vindication there maybe mm-hmm. and yeah the, the 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 main thing is you know we keep kind of sticking at it and trying to keep safe and yeah we're we're doing okay we're doing okay you're right that's the most important thing staying safe but from staying safe in person to staying safe online that's a very quite pleased with my segue there for that yeah Uh, smooth tell me about this piece of research chris that you've done into social media users and their behavior can you talk a bit about that yeah, I mean, you're right. One of the things that motivated us to do this was was the concept of safety. Our previous research, we'd looked at Facebook users uh, and cyber abuse on Facebook, but we found it really hard to kind of tease apart the effects there because when we thought about it, we realized that people that are connected on Facebook tend to have much more of a kind of real world connection. You know, there may be family or colleagues or old school friends or these sorts of things. So we followed that up by doing a Twitter study where we looked at celebrities. Um, and that was the last time we spoke was was specifically looking at the celebrity abuse. And this time we've stuck with Twitter. 
but we've looked at regular members of the public as victims and as observers. And the reason we, we chose that group and the reason we chose Twitter is because we know that it's easier to make contact with strangers on Twitter, regardless of whether they're celebrities or, or you know, members of the public, laypersons. And that to us hopefully made it a bit clearer that when there was some sort of negative content, when there was this cyber abuse, that it was abusive. It wasn't good natured banter between pals that was just sort of seen out of context or misunderstood. We wanted it to be clearer that this was strangers, you know, having a go at each other. So that that was the kind of main reason that we did the study in the first place. And, and what we were interested in was what does the Twitter user say? Uh, so, you know, the, the victim, essentially, if they say something negative, if they say something really mundane and straight down the middle, or if they say something positive, what does that do to the perceptions if that person is then abused? Mm -hmm. um, we looked at how much abuse the victim received. And then finally, we looked at the kind of individual differences between the observers. And, and this is where the sort of psychopathy and the sadism and the narcissism and the Machiavellianism all mm -hmm. kind of came in. Because again, in the past, I think we've been too focused on what's been happening on the platform and not thinking about the person who's observing it. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to kind of take that, that whole picture approach, you know, looking at what the victim said in the first place. How did people react to it? And who is the person that's actually looking at the, the incidents? There's so much to unpack from that there, Chris. I suppose the best place to start is, how was the research actually carried out? Can you talk a wee bit about the methodology? Yeah, so for obvious reasons, we had to use an online survey. Mm -hmm. It would have been nice to get people into a room and show them these things and, and talk to them and, and get their kind of experience of, of being an observer. But for, for health and safety and practical reasons, we used an online survey. And we sent that out globally and we got 125 usable responses uh, from, from all over the world, mostly from the UK uh, and North America. Um, but we did have, um, have some global reach with this research. And we used stimuli that we'd used before for the celebrity study, um, but we changed the profile owner's names and the profile owner's pictures. Um, and we just created very typical Western names using sort of you know most common surname lists and most common first name lists and we used stereotypically biological male faces um, the reason we limited it to males um, was because we had some data that suggests that males and females are perceived differently when they're the victims of, of online abuse so we wanted to kind of focus on one group at a time um, so we chose to do males this time around and we, we basically got people to look at screenshots of artificially created Twitter abuse and get them to decide who was at fault. Was it the victim? Was it the abusers? How serious was the abuse from very innocuous all the way to, to extremely severe? And then we got the participants to, to fill out those, those personality scales. So it was an online survey, probably took them about 15 to 20 minutes. And then we, we analysed the data in, in a whole bunch of ways to find out what was going on. What were some of the tweets that the people were looking at and observing? 
so the the negative tweets would be things like why don't people just f off and die you know someone kind of railing at the world and and having a wee bit of a, a twitter meltdown the the neutral kind of mundane things would be you know roll on five o'clock um and the the positive things would be you know so excited about working with craig on the podcast next week you know so yeah. We made a point of making them realistic. So, you know, it wasn't things like I've, I've just won a hundred million pounds on the Euro millions because that's very hard to relate to. Yeah. It was decided, you know, that we would use things that were as realistic as possible. And we, we pre-tested all the tweets on whether or not our decisions about what was negative, neutral and positive were, were backed up. And we also rated them on things like politeness because we you know, we wanted to show that the things that we called negative, it wasn't just that they were sad, it was that they were sort of socially negative, so it was rude and it was it was emotionally sort of provocative as well. So we got a group of other, you know, naive participants separate from the main study to do all those ratings um, before we kind of released the stimuli to the real world. So what were the results then, Chris? We mentioned at the start that almost a quarter of Twitter users, they showed psychopathic or sadistic behaviour. Can you talk a wee bit about that in more detail? So the, the scales that we used to measure the, the sadism, the narcissism, psychoticism and the, the Machiavellianism, they are subclinical. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, have you ever tortured an animal? Did you bedwet into adulthood? Have you ever started fires? You know, it wasn't that kind of stuff. It was more things that are negative, but quite common. So, you know, maybe items about, you know, I, I prefer to get revenge quickly or I quite enjoy watching people falling out, you know, so not not positive, but not sinister as such. And we found that the, the higher that people scored on those kind of everyday negatives, the less likely they were to perceive this abuse as serious. You know, they were more likely just to shrug it off and they were more likely to victim blame. So particularly the people that scored high in psychoticism and sadism were more likely to, to say, well, it was the victim's fault. You know, they shouldn't have tweeted that in the first place. You know, those people have got a right to criticise. They can say what they want. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be kind of what was coming through. Um, and again, to, I, I feel a wee bit sorry for our participants in some ways that they're, you know, they're getting painted as, as deviant. You know, the, <laughs> the main thing was that they were just everyday members of the public and you know th these these high scores they're not necessarily anything to worry about in terms of you know people demonstrating you know violent or sadistic behavior in real life you know it's it's more people that would um they like to get their own way by manipulating other people okay. or you know they, they love watching other people's drama you know that kind of thing rather than you know something that's you know really seriously seriously worrying that, that was really, really quite interesting to us. We, we hadn't looked at the sadism before in a lot of details and, and that came through really quite clearly. And, you know, the, the big story, I suppose, would be that the amount of victim blaming was pretty high. You know, people were quite keen to blame the victims. You know, that, that kind of classic thing of, well, they shouldn't have tweeted in the first place. You know, as soon as you tweet anything, you're leaving yourself wide open um, for, for any kind of response. And, you know, the, the thing that was, <clears throat> it was unsurprising, but important for us to check was, you know, that effect of what the victim said in the first place. And although it's not right that anybody gets abused online, we did see that people 
had particularly little sympathy when the the victim had tweeted something negative. Mm-hmm. So when the victim had had you know gone out and and ranted about their day or ranted about their job or whatever it was, you know things that we've all seen lots of times on social media. If they then got abused, people had really really little sympathy, and they didn't see that abuse as particularly severe. If, if the victims had said something more neutral or more positive, they got more sympathy and they were less likely to be blamed. But I mean, I guess to me, what it's showing is that we all would probably say that online abuse is a terrible thing, but we don't treat all victims equally and we don't treat all incidents as equally severe. So what would motivate someone to write abusive comments to a stranger online? I think the fact that they can is is a big part of it. I mean, that's that's the sad thing is you've got these platforms that can be used for amazing things, you know, sharing ideas and sharing good stories and connecting people. But the, the flip side of that is there is a platform for people just to be really unpleasant at, at best and, you know, scarily abusive at worst. Um, so that the fact that people can do it um, is, is part of the problem. And there is that whole thing of you don't have the physical closeness with the person you're abusing. You're not in a shared physical space with them. So there is that kind of thing of I can do what I want without having to observe the consequences. You know, people, even the kind of worst people don't tend to abuse people as closely or, or as intensely when they're, they're physically present because it, it does kind of trigger a negative feeling on you when you when you see that your behavior has caused a negative reaction mm-hmm. it makes you think about what you've done it, it maybe makes you kind of reel it in a wee bit so the fact that they aren't necessarily aware of the consequences of their actions has an effect then you've got all the stuff about you know are they identifiable is there likely to be any meaningful consequence of their action to a certain extent you know if if someone is clever enough about how they set up their account or their profile or the way that they word what it is that they've they've written to some extent you know certain people can get away almost scot-free so it's it's a horrible it's a horrible side to what could be an amazing tool is Twitter the worst example of people getting abuse online? Again, it's it's hard to say. I think a lot of it depends on on what the relationship is between the abuser and the victim. On a kind of case by case basis, it's it's difficult. I mean, the impact of you know someone who who you thought you had a good relationship with abusing you on Facebook might be very different from a stranger having a pot shot at you on Twitter. But I, I do think that the way that a lot of people use Twitter maybe makes it more open uh, to that kind of abusive content. And I think that there's unfortunately been some some really, really high profile cases just even over the weekend, particularly involving sports persons. Um, yeah, of, of really, really large scale Twitter abuse. And yeah, I think just the, the nature of how people use Twitter to either promote themselves or the way that they maybe open themselves up in a professional capacity to build a network maybe does leave people a wee bit more vulnerable. Whereas maybe something like Facebook is a bit more closed. It maybe does rely on trust and, and sort of real world connection to build that network. 
We'll talk about the consequences for people who abuse others online just shortly, Chris. But coming back to the study, we've spoken about the, the, the very worst end of it, the people that are showing psychopathic or sadistic behaviours. What about the other 75%? What kind of range of behaviours did you see from them? I mean, the, the important thing, I suppose, in our data and the, the kind of reassuring thing was that nobody 100% blamed the victims on every single trial. You know, some people, even those that were scoring at our highest end of the, the kind of dark traits were, were scoring, you know, the, there was some acknowledgement that it was the abuser's fault and everybody perceived at least some level of severity you know there weren't any sort of zero scores uh, in those measures but the, you know the the 75 percent are, are that were in the kind of more normal range or in the, the the lower range of our scores they were still doing the victim blaming to some extent and you know they were still prepared to kind of shrug off some of the abusive content as innocuous so this is, you know, this is a, a, a real problem that, that is involving, you know, a huge section of society um, because it's it's not just limited to the people that score at the very top end of the scales. You know, they were they were less likely to agree with the statements about, you know, I watch ice skating, but I secretly hope they fall down. And um, you know, they were they were more likely to disagree with you know, any questions about, you know, I, I like to be the center of attention or I, I am convinced that I am a special person. You know, they were they were likely to maybe show a wee bit more humility and, and maybe a, a little bit more not not exactly like self-detriment, but you know, they were they were maybe likely to be a, just that wee bit more humble on some yeah. of these scales. But unfortunately, you know, people in that that group were still capable of, of blaming victims and, and still capable of shrugging off the severity of the abuse. Are you surprised by your findings? I'd like to say I was, um, but sadly, I'm not. I mean, I, th I think what, what was reassuring to me was the difference between this study and the one that we did with celebrity victims. In the celebrity victim cases, all that the participants really cared about was what did the celebrity say you know whether that was negative neutral or positive that seemed to be the biggest driver of whether people victim blamed or, or not and, and whether they saw it as as serious or not in our study this most recent one the the volume of abuse that was received uh, the sort of intensity of the abuse received did influence it so when you you're talking about lay people and and you know regular people do make up the vast majority of twitter users it's not just what they say, but it's how people react that matters. Whereas for, for various reasons with the celebrities, people's reaction doesn't seem to matter. Um, and I was a little bit worried that that, that would happen with the, 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 the lay people um, because it, it does matter how people respond and it matters for celebrities. I'm not saying celebrities should be treated as, as different people. But I think to me that was quite reassuring is that when it is a lay person and, and that lay person is maybe more identifiable to the, the, the participants, you know, they maybe do have a bit more sympathy. They maybe do take on board that what's happening is unacceptable. So I guess what we need to try and do now is, is more or less show the celebrities as still being real people. Mm -hmm. um, because it's it's not right that celebrity abuse is treated differently as you know members of the public, uh, because ultimately they are human beings. So that that leads me on to my next question, then, Chris. How can we put your findings to practical use? 
Uh, I mean, I, I guess this is why I'm so keen to to talk to people like you and, and do podcasts and, and kind of get the story out there. And, and social media itself is, is a great tool for sharing research findings in a way that people who wouldn't have to read this stuff can can get exposed to it. You know, with the best will in the world, um, it's hard to convince people to read a journal article. I mean, even if it's part of your course or your degree, you're not necessarily going to read every single recommended reading. You don't have time, you don't have the motivation. So I think being able to, to talk openly and, and, you know, have a conversation about this stuff, but, but with the evidence base is, is good. There's a lot to to be said for the the platforms themselves, making it easier to report abuse, making it easier to take sort of more lasting sanctions against people, more meaningful punishments, if if you want to use that word. So, you know, that's that's a good way to start. Um, And I think it's it's really good to see high profile people coming out and, and speaking about their experiences, making it more real because it can be very difficult to imagine the effect of of what you say on on social media or on email or whatever platform it is you're using so i think that you know the fact that really well-known people are coming out and condoning it they're talking about what the negative experiences were that that will hopefully start to have an impact but you know this this starts at the ground up you know it doesn't matter whether it's on social media or not you know you, you need to continue to push this idea that you can't treat people like that you can't talk to people that way and yeah i mean the the social media is is kind of like a a new bottle for old wine you know this this idea of prejudice and and hate speech you know it's been around pre-social media but i do think unfortunately social media just gives more people a more visible and direct platform so you know you need to you need to change the attitudes as well as the behaviors and and it's going to take a long time we spoke about consequences earlier, Chris, and I saw that over the weekend when you talk about like high-profile football players getting racial abuse, absolutely horrendous to see. Some of the suggestions were that if you want a social media account, you have to register it with, say, a passport or a driver's license so it is directly linked to a person. Is that something that can happen? Can social media companies do that? I mean, personally, it's not something that sits well with me. But what's your thoughts on it? I think it's a really tricky one. I mean, I, th- I think those suggestions do come from a genuinely good place. I mean, it's, I, I would be a bit like yourself. I'm not sure how happy I would be about having that identifiable data owned by a third party yeah. because th- there's issues around security. There's issues around what they then have the right to do with that data. But I do think that that's an interesting conversation to have. You know, I think if you could build in reassurances about how the data would be used and, and the kind of protections that you would have, because I guess, you know, like like any kind of identity theft, you would be worried that someone got hold of your account, behaved horrendously, like we've we've sadly seen over the last few days and weeks and months, and then you're kind of left carrying the can for it, even although you were maybe completely innocent. But I do think that that idea about accountability and identifiability is is very, very important. And personally, I think it would have a big impact. You know, if if someone was identifiable, then I I think it would I think it would make it more difficult for the levels of abuse that we currently see to be sustained. Well, it might be easier to identify them. That might not necessarily change their attitudes towards how they see this. this yeah, stuff we're talking about about victim blaming and, and, and online abuse. I mean, I think I think a system like that might work quite well for for 
the mainstream, you know, it would work quite well for your mainstream platforms and it would maybe change the conversation uh, away from sort of mainstream platforms. But what worries me is that you, you don't change the attitudes. So, you know, someone who has displayed racist behaviours or, or, you know, racist communications or sexist or other kinds of prejudice, prejudicial comments online, that comes from their attitudes, you know, that, that comes from them and, and what they believe is, is acceptable and right. And it's changing that that's more important than stopping it happening on Twitter. You know, you need to tackle, you know, the beliefs and the attitudes that lead to the behaviour. And I think we've, we've seen it a lot, particularly around Black Lives Matter and particularly around the US presidential uh, election. Mm-hmm. When people take sanctions on the kind of mainstream platforms, it pushes people into less regulated and less visible spaces. And that is, to me, as as dangerous uh, or if not more dangerous than, than, I'm not saying letting it run unchecked, but if you can't monitor it and you can't control it and you can't highlight why the behaviour is wrong and, and inappropriate and horrendous, you know, if you don't have that oversight of it, it runs unchecked and it grows. And again, you know, it goes back to that thing of, you know, these these horrible attitudes and these sort of horrible behaviours, they happened in other ways before social media. You know, social media is just a new platform for people to behave that way. And and sport, unfortunately, is a really, really tragic example. You know, maybe the days of, of people throwing fruit from the touchlines is, is in the, the dark ages, but it's potentially the same individuals with the same beliefs that are now doing that online. And that would just be too heartbreaking to think of the things that were happening to people like Mark Walters and Paul Elliott in the late 80s, to think that we haven't progressed in 30 odd, 40 years, and it's now just the same attitudes, the same prejudice, but happening on a fancy platform via a smartphone, that's that's heartbreaking to think of that. Judging by everything you're saying, it still sounds like we've got a long way to go to understand social media and its capabilities and the consequences that come along with that. Absolutely. We need to have more conversations with victims. Uh, we need to have more conversations with perpetrators. It's it's not a nice thing to do to, to engage uh, these people in the conversation, but it is important. And a lot of the research that we've done is, is quite narrow in that we've maybe looked at white profile owners. Um, we've, we've not started looking at the question of race and we've typically used male victims and we need to, to open that up more broadly. We do have ongoing research projects at the moment that are starting to touch on those questions, but I do think we, we need to start exposing perpetrators to the consequences of their actions and we need to start really reassuring uh, victims that they are being heard. And we've got a long, long way to go, unfortunately. Well, Chris, thank you very much for chatting to me today. I have no doubt I'll see you again soon. I'll catch up with you in the summer. Thanks, Craig. All the best. Look after yourself. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning in to today's episode. And I hope you'll join us again very shortly when we'll be talking with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm-hmm.